0: Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the Matt Lupu Podcast. For this season, I'll be posting supplementary materials on my website, mattlupu.com. There, you can find maps, photos, and more to go along with each episode. Check out the entry for this episode. It's up right now. Once again, you can find it all at mattlupu.com. And now, on to the show. If you've been following the news since February of this year, you probably know about what's been going on in Eastern Europe. Of course, I'm referring to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. In the months since the largest military conflict in Europe since World War II has begun, I've listened to a lot of commentary and analysis trying to explain the situation. And while the analysis that I've listened to has been most informative when it comes to matters of NATO expansion and Russian gas supplies, I find myself asking still more questions. Are the Ukrainian and the Russian people different? If they are, how are they? If they're the same, then why have they found themselves in conflict, not just now, but historically? I've listened to many experts explain that the Russians and the Ukrainians speak different, albeit related, and similar languages. How did that happen? Does that difference in language have any bearing on the relationship between Ukraine and Russia? If so, how? Now, I want to preface this upcoming project with a disclaimer. I'm not an expert in Russian history. I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian. So whatever conclusions I might come to in the course of my research is necessarily biased by reading all of the relevant documents, save a very few, in translation. But even if I did speak Russian and Ukrainian fluently, it wouldn't be of much help in reconstructing the earliest origins of the Rus. For that, one would need expertise in Classical Arabic, Persian, Old East Slavic, Old Norse, Byzantine Greek, and Latin. That's because the earliest history of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples was written by outsiders. Whatever I say about this subject is open to debate and interpretation. The only statement that I can make, which is, at least in my humble opinion, beyond controversy, is that to have any hope at understanding the broader cultural and historical differences that define the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, one must look to the past. You see, the very beginnings of the Russian and Kievan states lie in the Never Never Land a few centuries after the fall of Rome, a period that we in the West refer to as the Dark Ages. This time was a period of migration and transition. Some modern scholars see it as the tail end of the so-called migration period, a time when people scattered across the Eurasian continent moved great distances for a variety of reasons. It began at the very earliest in the fourth century AD and lasted until as late as 800 AD. Scholars, of course, disagree on the exact dating and more importantly, the exact causes of the migration period. One theory that I particularly like goes something like this. In order to defend from the nomadic peoples to the north, successive Chinese dynasties built a series of walls to stop their incursions to the south. Eventually, with the advent of the Han dynasty, these smaller walls were combined into a continuous Great Wall of China. After an apocalyptic war with the nomadic Xiongnu people, a northern branch of this steppe confederation decided to begin moving west in search of new lands to conquer. Over the course of a century, this group, known as the Hun, pushed the survivors of their vanquished western neighbors ever farther westward in a sort of domino effect, as one tribe displaced another right up to the borders of the Roman Empire. The presence of hundreds of thousands of hungry refugees seeking safety inside of the land of the Romans led to the empire's eventual decline into military anarchy and collapse. That's a cool story, but it certainly is a gross oversimplification, having more in common with myth than real history. Whatever the cause or causes of the migration period, we can say with confidence that it did have an effect on the fall of the Roman Empire and the subsequent emergence of the proto-nations that would spring up inside of its former borders the eventual fall of the Western Roman Empire would have far-reaching consequences beyond Western Europe. As you might imagine, whatever survived of the Roman Empire survived in a greatly reduced capacity. The eastern part of the Roman Empire, the so-called Byzantine Empire, while still a powerful military force in the Mediterranean world, would not be able to maintain its former power and influence for long after the loss of its western half. With the decline of Roman power and increased foreign attacks on Roman territory, those previous Roman allies seemed to have turned on their once rich and powerful friends and sought to control Roman lands for themselves. There's another controversial argument to be made here, that the rise of Islam and the early expansion of the Caliphate was a direct result of the Eastern Romans' newfound political and military weakness. The tribes of the Lachmid and Ghassanid Arabs would submit themselves to this new faith, and in the aftermath of a final destructive war between Rome and Persia, would sweep into the lands of both formerly powerful empires, bringing with them a new and different worldview and religion from the former strongholds of Christianity and Zoroastrianism. The rise of the caliphate at the point of the sword greatly disrupted long-distance trade that in previous generations had been taken for granted. Trade routes that had formerly existed inside of the borders of one empire or another were now forced to cross multiple hostile frontiers, thus interrupting the supply of luxury goods that had once been readily available, if not exorbitantly expensive. If that wasn't bad enough, the poverty that had accompanied all of this war would have severely diminished the demand for those same luxury goods, further collapsing long distance trade. This situation seems to be borne out by the archaeological evidence. The subsequent loss of profit was felt acutely all over the globe, from India and China in the east to Scandinavia in the north. In happier times, the people of Scandinavia did a booming trade with Romans and non-Romans alike. One of several rare Scandinavian luxury items in demand at Rome was amber from the Baltic coast. Several examples of carved Baltic amber have been excavated in many different places and at many different times within the Roman Empire. Another luxury item in demand would have been exotic furs like mink and sable. Of course, Roman goods were just as in demand in Scandinavia. Numerous examples of Roman ceramics and coins have been found everywhere in the far northern lands from Denmark to Sweden. While several theories have been proposed for what began the so-called Viking expansion of the 8th century AD... My personal favorite is that the economic aftershocks of the various calamities that attended the end of classical antiquity provided more than enough motivation for small bands of warriors to go a Viking. In other words, if the local military strongman could not maintain their influence through control of trade, then they would maintain it by force. This theory, as you might imagine, is not universally accepted but there are some tantalizing clues left for us in the earliest records of the Viking raids in England. According to the West Saxon Chronicle, the first hostile contact between the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons of England occurred when three boats of Northmen arrived on the Dorset coast. They were greeted by an emissary of King Bothric of Wessex. This emissary mistook the Northmen for traders and referred them to the royal estate, probably at Dorchester the Northmen then killed the official and all of his men. If we are to believe that this contact predates the far more famous story that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records, that is, the Viking raid on the monastery of Lindisfarne in 793 AD, then one might see how Scandinavian contact with Dark Age England gradually evolved from peaceful trade to violent attack. But the Vikings weren't simply interested in Western Europe. There seems to have been a kind of cultural memory or institutional knowledge, of a formerly bustling amber trade that led previous generations of Scandinavians on well-worn rivers, sea, and land routes, from their northerly homeland all the way to the coasts of England and France in the west, and the Caspian Sea and the Persian Empire in the east. As the former Persian Empire began to recover economically, and demand for northern luxury goods reappeared in the markets of the newly founded capital of Baghdad, the Northmen began to take more of an interest in river trade that led deep through the primeval forests of Eastern Europe. These were the famed Rus, the forerunners of states that we know today as Russia and Ukraine. As we continue this series, I will do my very best to grapple with documented history as it exists and to include archaeological findings where appropriate. The journey will be fraught. This subject, as you might imagine, was of acute interest to everyone from the Tsars to the Soviet Politburo, each one using the scant historical and archaeological evidence for their own narrow political objectives. My training as a historian and as a scientist compel me to maintain neutrality in dealing with the evidence. But after all, I'm only human. I'm prone to bias and subject to emotion, as are we all. That said, I hope you'll join me and we can all learn about the history of the Rus' together. I'm Matt Lupu. Thanks for listening.